and greetings. Welcome to another episode of Bear Talk. The topic today is going to be the war in Ukraine, and we'll be trying to uh, answer the question or get at the question, what was Vladimir Putin thinking when he decided to invade Ukraine? My guest today is Dr. Svetlana Savranskaya, who is uh, a senior analyst and director of Russian programs at the National Security Archives in Washington, D.C. Um, I invited Svetlana onto the podcast and asked her to try to explain what Putin might have been thinking and what are the Russians thinking um, as this war in Ukraine drags on. So I hope you enjoy uh, the conversation. Well, Svetlana Savranskaya, thank you very much for coming on my podcast to uh, talk about the, the the war in Ukraine and the situation in Russia. Um, let me, uh, I think I'd like oh. to start by... Thank you very much yes. for inviting me, and I'm very <laughs> excited to talk to your listeners. Uh, let, let me, um, let, let me uh, start by asking, um, maybe you could just say a little bit about, I mean, obviously Russia and Ukraine have a, have a long history, sort of a common history, uh, and I think, you know, people hear a little bit about it, but they don't know so much about it. And I wonder if you might just sort of talk generally about, you know, the connection between Russia and Ukraine historically. I think um, we all start from the same origin, Russia and Ukraine were part of the big Slavic uh, state, East Slavic state, and uh, Ukraine plays a major role in Russian national history and culture as kind of the origin. Kiev, in the words of one of uh, Russian ancient prophets, was supposed to be the mother of all Russian states. So we we're gonna all count our history from the same place although of course you would see a lot of revision revisionists history now um but more or less people agree that the eastern slavs come from the same origin and then they split into different branches um, mainly after the period of the mongol invasion and um, creation of separate principalities so during that time the Russian principality gradually became more powerful. And as it became more powerful, there was this idea that we beat back the Mongols and then the Russian princes, the Moscovite princes, would gather the Russian lands. And this is a very interesting idea that kind of goes throughout the Russian history, this idea of gathering the lands. Um, Russia, um, of course, joined Christianity. Um, Russia was baptized by the Prince of Kiev, the Grand Duke of Kiev, Prince Vladimir. And um, so it's, you have the common language, you have common culture, and you have the common version of Christianity, which believed itself to be the third Rome the only after the fall of constantinople the orthodox christians believed that their church was the true christian church and so moscow was the third Rome. okay so okay. let's just maybe let's try to get some of the the, the chronology so kiev is basically founded in what I mean, what is it? it goes 900 when has kiev become a city um, roughly wow it's uh. a you know so the baptism is ninth century so the uh -huh. uh, founding of the city probably goes to seventh I, and i i'm not okay. sure about but that. but so then but moscow doesn't exist at that point right so no, that, moscow that, is moscow is the 12th century, the 12th moscow century. A, yeah yeah moscow is a much later development so the original russian civilization is centered in kiev kiev is the main capital I'm and sure, the, yeah. for the russian history and for the ukrainian history what's especially important is that the, a lot of sacred objects and places of the church are in Kiev and probably the most sacred uh, monastery the Kievan Lavra is in Kiev and a lot of old Russian saints um, are buried there so it's a it's a place of pilgrimage from all over the uh, Orthodox Christian world Moscow is a newcomer it it's founded in 1147 
and then gradually, gradually assumes power as Kiev weakens and the territory of Ukraine is divided and subdivided by the Lithuanian state, by then later by the Polish state, then again by the Russians. So Moscow assumes this dominance and once it does, uh, much later in the 15th and 16th century, we're talking like much later, Right. it starts gathering the lands. And of course, Ukraine is one of those major, most important territories that Russia wants to uh, take back into the Russian state. And they finally do in 1653 mm -hmm. um, by kind of by an invitation from the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians were seeking protection from the Poles and the Lithuanians. And again, now it's very controversial whether it was done voluntarily or not, but the fact is in 1653, they signed this uh, unified treaty and the Russian and Ukrainian representatives go to all the major cities in Ukraine and in Russia to kind of present it to the people and seek support. So, so, when Russians look at Ukraine and Kiev today, do they do they, how do they think about it? Do they think about it like, oh, this this should this should be ours, or this is really a part of Russia, or, or how do they, how would how do they think about this? Since that's basically the history, the origin, uh, the origin story, really. Right. For... You know, it's interesting. This this attitude changes, is changing as we speak. I think if you asked you know, five, six years ago, people would say, well, you know, of course, of course, Ukraine is a historical part of Russia. And, you know, eventually, these people will be together. As you know, as a Russian American, I certainly see Ukraine as a fraternal um, people. Uh, I certainly, you know, I studied this history. I feel very close to the Ukrainians. And a lot of my family is also in Ukraine. I have three branches of family in Ukraine. And a lot of Russians have family in Ukraine. There are so many intermarriages. These two peoples were so, so close. And if you look at the Soviet period, I think this is when they were the closest. Um, the experience of fighting together in World War II, the Great Patriotic War, the fact that Khrushchev was um, from Ukraine. He was mostly Ukrainian. Uh, Brezhnev was part Ukrainian. Gorbachev was half Ukrainian. So there is a lot of um, interwoven fabric here. Now I think people realize more and more, Russians, that Ukraine is actually a separate state. And it takes time, I think, for Russians you know, just mentally to think in those terms. But more and more people now do actually think at, of Ukraine as a separate state and a separate cultural entity. And so this we might, this is a kind of, this dynamic is all over, right, in Eastern part of Europe. So, I mean, the Serbs have this issue with uh, Kosovo and the Hungarians have the issue with uh, Transylvania, you know, that's part of Romania. So, I mean, this is just sort of, kind of the history of this part of the world yeah, so it's very intermixed you know and it's once we once we start thinking about like the ethno-nationalist uh dis descriptions terminology it instantly becomes very sensitive and very politicized and we just thought that you know europe reached an agreement on peaceful border resolution and the end of history. <laughs> All right, so let's okay. So let's think a little bit about then what's going on now or the the war. And so let's maybe we'll start with the with Putin. Uh, I mean, well, so let me just ask you. I'm just curious uh, because we all saw some sort of buildup right going on, uh, you know, with the Russian army around Ukraine. What were you surprised? when uh, Putin decided to sort of invade all of Ukraine or what, what were you thinking was going to happen? Or did you say, ah, this is just, you knew it was coming or how, how did you respond to this? I wish I knew. Um, I personally do not know any responsible, intelligent person who actually knew. Maybe there were some, 
I was speaking in various forums saying, um, no, he will not invade. Mm -hmm. He's using this military pressure for diplomatic purposes. You know, I was convinced that he would not invade. I thought it would be such an irrational thing to do. And he is not an irrational human being. And I don't think he uh, is risk prone. You know, he's very calculating. So it, it was very hard for me to imagine that he would actually invade. I thought that the worst he could do is to uh, recognize these two republics and then um, create a push inside these republics to join Russia or something like that. Or, you know, invite the Russian troops in and occupy only those parts of the republics that are con controlled by the separatists. But invade, and especially on such a scale, no, I absolutely did not expect that. I was surprised. Okay, good. So I was just shocked. To, I was yeah, shocked. All right. So just to be clear, because uh, I want to ask a follow-up, but so we're talking about the uh, what you thought and a lot of people thought, and actually this is what I thought too, uh, was that maybe he was looking to get these these so-called breakaway, the Don, Donbass and the, uh, the Donetsk region, and maybe he was going to expand in there, and that was what the game was, and the rest of it was a was kind of a bluff or, or something. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay, so given that it was kind of surprising and it didn't seem to be at least, well, what, why do you think he did it? What, 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 what's the explanation then for this big invasion? Or, I mean, of course, it's speculation, but what do you think? Right. It's, uh, it's a speculation. I think we will know much more. A, I think he was misinformed. I think he got, as every di dictator does, he got wrong information because his subordinates partly um, misanalyzed information, but partly were uh, trying to give them the information that he would like. He genuinely believed, like the Americans believed when they went into Iraq, that they will be greeted as liberators. And that like in the Crimea in 2014, there would be no actual military resistance. Um, he thought, well, the best case scenario is when um, the Ukrainians greet him as liberator and the Russian troops would be able to march into Kiev, change the government, and then install some kind of a pro-Russian um, regime. And that would be it. And then troops would go home. The less successful scenario would be something like uh, they would not be greeted by uh, the Ukrainian people as liberators, but there would be no active resistance. And so they would be able to change the regime, install the new government. The new government will give Russia security guarantees, give up um, NATO aspirations and, um, you know, several other conditions that Putin demanded, but it didn't happen. So to your question. So one reason why he invaded is A, he had really bad information. It It is a strategic failure. It's a tragic mistake. Um, on the other hand, if we're trying to kind of, you know, get into Putin's mind, <clears throat> which is useful, you know, even if we really dislike him, um, he believed at that moment that he had no other instruments to achieve his goals. And he announced certain goals and he overcommitted himself to the achievement of those goals, such as no Ukraine and NATO, such as no deployment of foreign forces on the Ukrainian soil, um, Ukrainian neutrality. So he had to do something and he believed that he ran out of options. Okay, so that okay, so the one thing, so he, he miscalculated the risk. Okay, that's the first the thing I heard you clearly saying that he he just he just it was in, he was probably poorly informed or whatever, but he miscalculated the risk. Then the other, so that's part of that was part, in other words his his calculation was different. But right. in terms of his goals, 
you know, that's a sort of slightly different question. What was he trying to achieve? So what do you think in that, was he motivated by sort of this dream, by sort of Russian nationalism? Was he motivated by... Um, wanting to respond to NATO or, or was he was he responding to domestic pressure I mean, what what was the well I guess that responding is a motivation question again but in terms of the goal um, uh, you know what was he what was his dream exactly what was he trying to he thought it was going to be easy and what exactly was he trying to achieve do you think so he was not responding to any domestic pressure that's mm-hmm pretty clear because I don't think he is responding pretty much to any domestic pressure. But um, he has this vision of um, Ukraine as part of the Russian world. Um, And it's it's a very strong belief. To understand Putin's thinking, you gotta take his historical kind of um, claims seriously. He does believe himself a historian. You know, he he likes to talk about history in um, in various formats. He believes history is key to building of a nation. So last summer he published this article, which is called something like "On the Unity of Ukrainian and Russian Peoples." It's a very long article, something like over 5,000 5, words. And then he goes through entire history and he lays out his vision um, that naturally, naturally, if, if Ukrainian people just followed their natural desires, they will be united or they will be in very close uh, alliance with the Russian people. It's the pro-fascist, pro-Nazi nationalists in Western Ukraine who came to power and um, actually acting on orders of some evil, you know, puppet handlers in the West. They're trying to subvert the Ukrainian nation from its true destination, which is union with Russia. And so, you know, he... He deeply believes that Ukraine and Russia are very, very closely tied together, together, and that is the natural course of things. He believes in it passionately. It's like he is not just using it for political reasons. But the other reason, I don't think that would have been enough for um, military invasion and being willing to um, pay that cost. I think for Putin, it's also, and here I'm talking not just about Putin, but the close elite around Putin. It's the issue of NATO at your door. And this is something more serious than Putin's belief about where Ukraine belongs. If you look at the entire period since the end of the Cold War, um, this Um, fear of NATO advancing, fear or concern of NATO advancing to the Russian borders is really prevalent among the entire Russian elite. And I am talking here about politicians from all parts of the Russian political spectrum. There is not another issue that unites people from the right, from the left, from, you know, every every party that's represented in the Duma throughout the 90s and later. And Putin, initially, when he came to power in the early 2000s, he actively was seeking Russian membership in NATO. And that's, you know, now looking back at it, it's, it's just amazing, hard to believe, but he was. He was asking pretty much every uh, U.S. leader, you know, we 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 probably want to join NATO. <coughs> Sorry, I'm recovering from some cold, but anyway, so he he tried this, and the response was always negative. No, you know, Russia can't become a member. At the same time, NATO expanded under Putin four times 
You know, so under Yeltsin, it expanded once. Under Putin, it expanded four times. And in the view of not just Putin, but a lot of members of the Russian elite, even liberal members, if there are such, NATO is getting closer and closer and closer. And NATO is a military alliance, which is not a friendly alliance. It's an it's a kind of Cold War um, alliance, which was built against the Soviet Union. Put NATO aside, you see the United States withdrawing from several very important arms control treaties. Uh, most important for Russia was the ABM treaty, the treaty prohibiting anti-ballistic missile defenses. And then most recently, INF treaty, which Gorbachev and Reagan signed in 1987. Well, now that the United States withdrew from the treaty, it is quite possible and very threatening in the view of the Russian military elite that the United States might redeploy intermediate and medium range ballistic missiles in Europe which would have the flight time to Moscow on under five minutes. Well, that's decapitation for you. So, you know, it's a strategic understanding um, of a kind of um, almost existential threat to Russia. This is how the Russian elite sees NATO expansion. So sounds like, okay, so it sounds like you're talking about there's sort of two as you see it, there's two, um, I don't know, overlapping. I mean, right, there's this kind of whatever we call it, the greater <laughs> Russia or some Russian right. nationalism. And then there's the, the, the issue of NATO expansion. or uh, right. And so are you saying that, I mean, and it, it, you think that Putin was primarily motivated by the dream of Russian nationalism and it's the elite that are thinking about NATO? Or is it sort of both? Or, or those both of these reasonings exist in the mind of Putin, or well, yeah, both of, there, yeah. it's both. It's, it's both. both. I would say um, this this kind of passionate attachment to Ukraine um, does does exist in the elite, but it's not as ex well expressed or widespread. Certainly, Russia has been using history for political reasons as many European countries do, but Russia specifically for state building reasons. But I think the main motivation is still strategic. There was another motivation that I would like to mention, um, which is more economic. Um, Putin was trying to build something that he called the Eurasian Union. It would be an integration organization kind of modeled on the European Union but it would be called the Eurasian Union. So several countries have joined the Eurasian Union, including Kazakhstan, but Ukraine was the most important country that was supposed to join. And under the pro-Russian president Yanukovych, Ukraine was very close to joining the Eurasian Union. And so it was very, very important for Putin. Now, with the ouster of Yanukovych, that dream ended. But there was still this unrealized potential of very close economic cooperation, integration with Ukraine, which is also a reason. But I think it's um, it's secondary to the strategic reason. Okay. Well, so let's go, let me go back then, because you said something earlier about... Um... Uh, I don't know how exactly you, you said it, but you, you, something that Putin had sort of had sort of maximal demands, and then he sort of had to act on them. Or so it's not. It, it, so let's suppose that his um, he's motivated by this uh, concern about NATO, and he came surround. You know, he threatens, adopts his threatening posture towards Ukraine, and puts forward a number of demands about NATO which really weren't real. I mean, I, I guess part, one of them was Ukraine shouldn't be a member of NATO, which seems more realistic demand than some of the, the other demands. So he had these unrealistic demands uh, in the sense that there was not, they were not going to be accepted uh, by the West. Is that right? Would you say? And then he sort of, he stuck. Uh, I mean, why did he make these sort of ex maximalist demands? Did he think he was going to achieve them or what was going well, on there? Um, 
some of these concerns are legitimate. But I think that the sad uh, side of it is that pretty much everyone in the West understood that Ukraine was not going to join NATO. Um, yeah. You know, this was this this you know little bird in the sky, and nobody wanted to say it openly. But in a private conversations within NATO and outside, all American and European officials were saying, "Well." No way. But in 2008, in a really tragically wrong decision, in, in my view, the United States put pressure on the allies to say in the communique, NATO communique, that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Now, nobody ever did anything serious to, um, to help, to move it along. So they kind of, you know, said a nice thing, which was incredibly provocative for Putin. And in the West, everybody understood that this is just rhetoric, that Ukraine was not going to join in any foreseeable future. But Putin took it seriously, you know, and a lot of people in the Russian elite, I would say a minority. I think smart people in the Russian elite understand that Ukraine was not going to join NATO. But the West would not make a public commitment, and the Ukrainians would not make a public commitment, even though I think both sides understood where the case really was. Uh, and for Putin, it gave a pretext and even a reason to say in his speech proclaiming the war that he was concerned that there would be uh, nuclear weapons that there would be ballistic missiles deployed by NATO in Crimea. And what are we going to do then? So, so, but here's, this is the question. So if his, if he, this is what I'm trying to, here's what I want to try to push on this, is that if Putin's objection was, or sorry, objective was simply to get guarantees that Ukraine would not join NATO, he probably could have gotten, I mean, at least there was stuff in the news that even Zelensky was kind of like considering this. I mean, that, that to me, uh, to, from my point of view, it seems like a, an achievable objective. If, if the only objective is we want assurances that Ukraine will not not uh, or Ukraine has to renounce its desire to be, to enter Ukraine, to me that seems kind of like he could have achieved that. That and he didn't have to invade Ukraine to try. Uh, maybe this is my analysis is wrong. He didn't have to try, invade Ukraine to try to achieve that objective. You think? What? That's because you you have good analysis, David. <laughs> <laughs> I think any person given these kind of initial coordinates would say, oh, well, you know, if that was achievable, why war? But in, again, this is in Putin's view. In Putin's view, he kept demanding that from the West. And, you know, his concrete demands were a pledge of no further NATO expansion right no foreign bases in ukraine no foreign military bases in, in ukraine no deployment of ballistic missiles in east european countries mm -hmm. so he kept repeating that and only in december the united states actually came through and some negotiations began but the United States and the West, NATO, were never willing to give him security guarantees that would be guarantees. Oh. They, you know, Putin was saying, I am not willing to rely on a gentleman's agreement, which is not public. We want public agreement. Uh -huh. So, and the other thing that happened, which is really interesting, so if you look at the coverage um, in the main, especially American newspapers, not in European, there is a real contrast there. I actually did some comparisons. So in the United States, beginning sometime in uh, December, but especially in January, all the newspapers said, oh, our, our intelligence, intelligence, con intelligence conclusion is that Putin is going to invade Ukraine. Putin is going to invade Ukraine. You remember they were even giving specific dates, right? right. 
Right. First right. in January, then in February. February 16 was the actual date they expected the invasion. And Sorry. so, Putin, no, that's fine. Uh, Putin was really um, irritated over these. So, from his point of view, he was trying to negotiate. His demands, his demands were maximal, but they were also they were also the opening demands. If he got into serious negotiation, if he could, if he could have gotten Ukrainian neutrality and no NATO for Ukraine, I, you know, I believe there would not have been a war. And that's a very sad statement. It's a very sad statement. But now from the Western perspective, they did not want to fold under the pressure of a potential aggressor. And that is also understandable. And um, because Putin wanted public statements, public agreements, not just not just private assurances. He said, we don't believe in assurances. We, we want public guarantees. And NATO's position was, we have this principle of open doors and we will never renounce this principle. And if you know thousands and thousands of people are now dying because of that principle, well, it's not a good principle maybe. Um, well, but the other the other important thing about situation in Ukraine, you mentioned that Zelensky was talking about, oh, you know, we we are reconciled with the fact that NATO is just a dream. Now he can say this. I don't know. It is possible that before the war, his his political situation, his domestic political standing would not allow him to renounce NATO and proclaim neutrality. But I'm not sure. It could have been possible. So, okay, so uh, let, so you think that uh, he, Putin had certain, he had some pretty ambitious uh, objectives, okay? Uh, and then uh, he thought that he, he calculated the risk differently, so he thought it would be easier to take Ukraine than, than it was. And so these two things together, I suppose, could uh, affect a kind of calculus where you say, well, this is what I want. And right. if you don't get it, I'm just going to take it. And, and, and then that, and, and in a sense, he missed, he, he missed, uh, assessed the, the strength of his hand or so. You think right. that's, that, that's right? He, he certainly misassessed. He misassessed um, the weakness of Ukraine. He thought Ukraine would just fold and in fact, the Ukrainian military is fighting bravely, um, and Russia is suffering huge losses, and just huge losses, losses uh, bigger and more meaningful than the losses in, in Afghanistan. So Putin now especially got himself into this corner where, again, he has to win. He has to win with much smaller um, gain than he expected and he actually has fired but not not just fired um, put under house arrest several of FSB very top officials who were responsible for Ukraine and it's pretty clear that they gave him wrong information and that the Russian special operations in Ukraine that were supposed to prepare the Ukrainian society for, you know, welcoming the Russian forces and changing their government, that operation failed. So we kind of know that, but still in the place where we are, Putin will have to show some kind of victory. Okay, so let's okay, so let's ask this question. And so, if he, he has to show some kind of victory, it's not going very well, right, uh, for him. Uh, and so, there's a, all this talk. Well, he he might escalate if, if he knows he's losing. Uh, he since he has to have some victory, he there's a lot of danger of him escalating either by using chemical weapons or uh, some sort of nuclear weapon and so forth. And, and what do you th so what do you think of this uh, this argument or this fear? 
you know, I was concerned about it, but earlier on, I think now that he entered negotiations, that they stopped just referring to Ukraine as this, you know, pro-Nazi regime. They are willing to negotiate with Zelensky as a legitimate president representing a legitimate country. I see this as a turn in the right direction. I think Putin would fight hard for limited goals. And I, I think there will be escalation in southeastern Ukraine, certainly, you know, in the Lugansk and Donetsk territories. And you can see how hard the fighting for Mariupol is. So I think that his strategy has changed. I think what he's trying to do, if you look at the map, right, I think he is trying to get control over the area which would provide a land uh, way, land bridge to Crimea. And, I, and there is some, you know, some ideological support there um, with the idea that these are the Novorossiya, these are the lands that Russia obtained as a result of the Osman War, the war with the Osman Empire. Um, you know, certainly there are people who believe that, and and strategically, I think this is what makes sense to him now, to hold that territory, uh, to force Ukraine to to agree to give that territory some special status. The the two republics, the two unrecognized republics, already have special status, but they might be incorporated in the Russia, in the greater Russia. And if if Putin can do that, he might see this as a sufficient victory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, well, let me ask this. Uh, I don't know how realistic, I guess I'm not enough of an analyst, but even that seems like <laughs> it might be a kind of ambitious goal at this point. I, I don't really know, uh, uh, but it, he may not even be able to get that. I don't, I, I don't know. What do you think? Or, you know, um, this is where we come to the question of escalation. I now do not think that he will use nuclear weapons, but there is this one little part in the Russian military strategy. You know, the Soviets were always pledging never to use nuclear weapons first, but in the Russian current military strategy, there is this little concept called escalate to de-escalate. And it's just very popular among all these military experts, escalate to de-escalate. So in this view, to prevent a further major escalation of conflict, you do a very small, radical, limited escalation, like, like the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. And you know, theoretically it's possible. I do not think it's realistic. Also because there, uh, it's not just Putin pushing the button. I think there is some um, growing disenchantment with this whole operation among the military. And when Putin thinks about pushing the button, he must also think, well, will this order be carried out? And I don't think he wants to test that. So, okay, so I just want to ask this last question about Putin because it, it, it's always in the news that he's actually crazy, and uh, you never know what he's going to do. He's going to get desperate, and uh, because he's about to, his regime's about, or he's about to, I don't know, be kicked out of office or ex killed or so. Or anyway, he once he gets, he's under existential, uh, personal existential threat. He's just going to. Shoot a missile, or drop an atom, or shoot an atomic, you know, nuclear weapon. So, what what do you make of this? Uh, what's your opinion on this sort of? You hear it all the time. This that that actually Putin is a madman. Uh, I don't think I don't think he's a madman. I think he uh, he lives in a very isolated world. 
and he lives in a world which is kind of structured, created by the trauma of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He, I think he feels it every moment, dissolution of the Soviet Union. And he is a state builder. So he sees himself, really, he sees himself as this great Russian leader who will make Russia great again. We heard that, right, in the United States. And it's very popular among many, many people, both in the United States and in Russia, to make their country great again, to appeal to these, you know, existential nationalist energies. So he sees things in this framework where his country is threatened, where his um, culture, his identity is threatened by the West. He wants to reorganize how the world is run. He wants to return to Russian traditional values and defend Russia against this, you know, bad Western influences. But he has not been like that for, you know, he it really, he went through incredible evolution. If you look at Putin in 2000 and Putin today, it's just really two different people. But anyway, to your question, he is not mad, but I think he also finds to some extent um, it useful to um, sometimes be seen as mad by the West. He, he understands this. He understands that people often present him as mad and capable of using nuclear weapons. And that's useful because it deters them. Right. Well, that, okay. That's, I'm not a Russia expert, but that's what I think too. And at this point, I totally, I think it's a, he's not mad. He, I, that sounds totally right to me. So I'm, I'll just move on to the next I think topic. he's very calculating, but yeah. also yeah. Uh, when you calculate on the basis of really false information, it's you make right. decisions. Right, and you, false information and you're not getting inadequate and he information. Doesn't, he, he also does not trust many people. He's uh -huh. very, very isolated. He does not have close friends. Well, what do you make? Okay, so what is the deal when you see him always like at these tables, really far away, or he doesn't want anybody near him? I mean, what, what's what's going on with that? Do you know? Is that because he's afraid of COVID, or what? What is that? What is that business where he won't let anybody near him, or at least he doesn't seem to do that? Right. Yeah, uh, we are all wondering. On the one hand, uh, the official explanation is COVID, but he must have Russian history in his mind where you have palace coups all the time. Um, people right. get killed or removed just like that. But but how would, okay, so maybe that's the case, but I, and you think someone will like stab them or, or, or they get up close or something or, okay. Uh, yeah, but official, official at least it is COVID and he is really genuinely afraid of, of something, it. okay. Um, all right. Well, let me switch a little bit then qu quickly. Just how do you how is this war being uh, sort of received w among the Russian population? I mean, insofar as we, we, we can tell, what do you think is the uh, how, what's the attitude among Russians? Is this war increasing Putin's popularity, decreasing it? Are they not people aren't aware of it? Or how, how is it, you know, I don't know, yeah, playing out? It's, you know, it is something that really bothers me. Because a lot of people <clears throat> with whom I'm in touch, if not support, then, um, you know, withhold the judgment. His popularity is rising. There's been several opinion polls which said his popularity shot up to 83%. Now, I would not take these polls seriously. And this is why. So you're in Russia. And all opinion polls are conducted on the phone. And in Russia, everybody is kind of conspiracy minded anyway. And with, uh, you know, Soviet past behind you, you always believe that somebody is listening to your phone. Um, so somebody on the other side of the phone says, uh, you know, I am an opinion pollster. I have a couple of questions. Question number one, do you support President Putin's foreign policy? And what do you think? Yeah, right? 
Um, so do not believe opinion polls, number one. But you, you see what people are posting on social media. You see uh, the discussions that people are having. And a significant part of the population does support, uh, you know, kind of punishing Ukraine for, you know, at least the current Ukrainian leadership for their NATO aspirations. A lot of people, what's interesting, and this is really, you know, this is really for me a question that I'm trying to think about more and more. Most people, when asked about the war in Ukraine, they blame the West. And they say, um, well, it's really, it's not about Ukraine at all. It's, uh, Ukraine is just a little proxy. Ukraine, just a little pawn. It's really the West trying to destroy Russia, trying to make Russia weak. And part of it, um, part of it is certainly, major part of it is very powerful propaganda. But part of it, um, is the reaction in the Russian opinion to very unilateral way of behavior, especially of the United States. Um, and people would cite Kosovo, and especially the war in Iraq, where decisions were made by the United States practically unilaterally, no other international forums were involved, um, and these were also military interventions in the country in countries where, in one case, you know, Iraq, even the reason turned out to be false, and a lot of civilians suffered. And um, there is this latent, partly uh, legitimate, um, negative attitude to the way the United States conducts its foreign policy. Um, so that creates a fertile ground for Putin's propaganda to say, well, you know, the next is Russia. You know, you, they bombed Yugoslavia, they bombed Iraq, they uh, bombed Afghanistan. Well, the next is Russia. And they're trying to undermine Russian place in the world. Now, also add to that, <laughs> there are no free media in Russia. Zero. Like, no. The last one uh, closed just two weeks ago, Nova Gazeta. Mm -hmm. You don't have access to information. So you have propaganda, the, it creates a narrative, the narrative has certain hooks that, uh, right. that it can hook yep, on to. Exactly. So it, it has to have some sort of hook, so it's a plausible narrative, at least for people. Right. And there's no counter evidence, and then everybody has a sort of natural instinct to uh, side with their own country. So the, all of these things kind of work together. Right? Yeah. Um, well, what about the sanctions? What, what, how, how, I don't know how people, do people feel those the, the effects of the sanctions in their everyday lives, and uh, does that you know strengthen Putin's domestic support, or how do how do the sanctions um, play out? Yeah. Um so in a in a very ironic way the sanctions are hitting people in the elite and people in uh, affluent classes much stronger than they're hitting the regular person and the regular person will be hit but not immediately it will take a couple of months mm -hmm. so far you know when i was talking to neighbors um, in my building in Moscow, they didn't see much of a difference. Yes, slight, slight price increases here and there, but um, then also the government now uh, raised the interest to 20%, so you can take your rubles and go to the bank and put them at 20%. You know, that's people like it. Um, popularity increases among people who listen to propaganda don't have very much to lose and who use you know basic foodstuffs mm -hmm. for people who are in more kind of integrated 
classes, people who used to go to Europe, people who drive foreign cars, people who rely on foreign products. Sanctions are more serious. They feel the result much more. But remember, Russia was under sanctions for at least eight years now. So people got used to it. And I, you know, right now, I thought that the sanctions would have much more of an effect. And so far, I, you know, I don't see it. A lot of people left Russia, of course, but those who left did not leave because of the sanctions. They left because they understood that this regime is just really, you know, a criminal regime. But um, sanctions so far have not achieved the effect that they intended to achieve, even though these are unprecedented sanctions. And I'm not sure for how long the West will be able to sustain the sanctions at this level. Okay, so do you have any thoughts on, um, I mean, how does this war end? I guess war end for Putin is really what I, I mean, is he going to, is he is he going to survive? I, I, well, I don't. I'm going to. Here's a. Th- I don't know what the chances are that somebody would want to like take, remove him in a palace coup. My my thought would be uh, that uh, if you were in the Russian, uh, you know, leading elite classes and you see that there's this uh, disastrous war going on, the last thing you want to do is put yourself in the leadership position because then you have to deal with it. You'd rather let this is. You'd rather let the thing play out. And then you can see how things uh, pan out at the end. But I mean, why would anybody want to take the risk of, of like taking over control? Of, you know, t- putting themselves in the situation they were responsible for what's going on, since it's it's clearly sort of Putin's war. So I, I, anyway, I don't. That's a. What do you think? Yeah, what, a, you know, this is a very good point. Um, that the question of transition becomes even more complicated because. Mm-hmm. There is really no strong opposition right now. All the opposition was destroyed, repressed, and squeezed out of the country. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty much looking at the existing elite. The existing elite, like you pointed out, very presciently, whatever, <laughs> brightly, uh, does not want to deal with the outcome of this. So I think if he is able to bring the war to some end which will declare victory he might survive and and that is the worst case for russia because then russia will become a completely closed isolated country thrown back in you know for decades and decades now if the war is prolonged unfortunately and as the coffins keep coming back to Russia, there might be discontent serious enough, both in the population and in the elite, that would lead to a complete change in the entire governing structure. Meaning, he's not just him, but his party is out. Mm-hmm. It's very unlikely. What I think, but it is possible, and this is the outcome that I would hope for, but I think more realistically, the outcome will be something along the lines that they are negotiating, and from the point of view of saving lives, it will be the best. I think Ukraine is now willing to uh, pledge no NATO aspirations. Um, no military basis and neutrality. And I, I think if that is available and the status of these two republics and Crimea remain either independent or part of the Russian Federation. So if we can have the agreement on NATO on neutrality and on these territories, then Putin can proclaim victory and pull the troops back. And, you know, if if I was trying to understand how his elite thinks, I think this is what they're thinking now. And if that's, if that's how the war ends, 
then it's very sad because as you pointed out before, this solution should have been available before the war and so much suffering and so much death. And Russia in any outcome, I think Russia will be paying for it for for decades and decades because of the, what happened. And, and if they can't, I mean, I think the NATO neutrality or the NATO, that, that, that to me seems, my, my thought would be that's kind of achievable. I don't know about the what in terms of the territorial revision or i'm not as convinced i i'm not that i don't you know i'm not a military analyst at all i know nothing right but i just not convinced uh that based on my impression that um ukraine's going to go for that uh i mean maybe they'll unless we're talking about crimea and the regions that are already um yeah yeah separate. Right. yeah, yeah. i think, think that they will try to they will try to keep mariupol yeah. um and this is the big question. Mariupol has been, um, you know, attacked so viciously. And the Kadyrov people, the Chechens, are there now. So Crimea is gone, right? The Ukrainians understand it, even though they hate to say it publicly. And the, the separatist, two separatist republics are not going to be part of Ukraine. So this is kind of, the, again, what nobody wants to say publicly, but it's a fact. Mm-hmm. It's a fact, fade complete. it's there. The question is Mariupol. Well, but also these other cities, right? Because, uh, I mean, at least there's, I mean, they, you don't think the Ukrainians can oh, push back. Bigger, that whole big... land bridge down to, I mean, right. you know, going yeah, down. Right. And this whatever, how do you say the name of the city? Kherson or uh, this Kherson, other city. Kherson, Mikhailov. Yeah. I think if... If Mariupol falls, then the other cities will too. You think? I think Mariupol is the big. You think? Big. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you, so you, at least in your presentation. But this you, is this is more military analysis, which I am I very know, far yeah. from, and I ju- I just think that Putin needs a victory now, and two elements of this victory is the neutrality for Ukraine. Um, no NATO and so no foreign bases on Ukrainian soil, right? And the third one is the territories. And he is, he pretty much got the first two Ukrainians that are willing to agree. And on the territories, they will achieve some forced compromise, which will allow him to say, well, we, that was our goal and we achieved it. Right. Okay. So, and I think what that means is, uh, this is the way I would interpret it, that the, 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 this last question about the territory uh, will just have to be decided on the battlefield, right? It's just going to, it's going to go on until the, there, everything is sort of totally fixed and locked into place, which means I think this war is going to go on for, um, until that's settled. I don't know how close we are far from that. And, and so I that, think, I think it will not go on for long. I don't think so. With the Russian losses, the way they are, I think he is under pressure to bring the war to the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's interesting. Okay, I don't know. So, and the Ukrainians might be more willing to, to keep fighting. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. So they may, they may, yeah. Just, um, I think this morning, maybe last night, Zelensky said something to the effect that he is not sure that he wants to meet with putin and that's yeah because the the, the the that's new because because yeah. before that he was saying that he is willing to meet with putin at any place other than russia and negotiate and this is the first time that he said it's not so so if the if the if uh, so if the this sort of scenario that you outlined shouldn't happen let's suppose that they really can't putin really can't get the territory, whatever the Ukrainians push back a little bit, and he can't get more than crime what he had already. So, let, so let the military objective, he doesn't achieve the uh, even a plausible military victory in uh, in uh, whatever it is, uh, Eastern Ukraine, other than what he already had. Right. Uh, then this this would mean he he's going to go down. You think, or what would be the impact? If, well, if the war, I think, if the war is prolonged goes on for a long time or if god forbid there is an escalation mm-hmm. um and i mean prolonged not for a month or two but for you know several months mm-hmm. i think there will be a level of discontent in russia that might lead to 
the removal of the party regime himself. Mm -hmm. It's very far-fetched, but I do see this discontent rising in Russia gradually. You know, country is in a really sad state right now, but there is there is some discontent. All right, Svetlana, well, thank you very much. That was interesting. Uh, I enjoyed thank that. you, David. Yeah. As I said, wonderful questions and really good analysis, I think. On <laughs> all right, well, thanks for, thanks for, um, thanks for giving, sharing your thoughts. And all of my listeners, okay, uh, make sure that you tune into the next episode, which will hopefully be uh, coming down in, in about a month.